Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Higher inflation looks likely to last into 2022. The Bank of England could be the first big central bank to raise interest rates. Why might it make the first move? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, finance editor at The Economist, and also on today's show... How real-time data are changing the practice of economics. The ideal world that we'd like to have is they're able to kind of construct these real-time forecasts from the ground up. And as a result, they're not going to run into the same traps they ran into in 2008, where it was you know, almost a year too late before they knew we were in a recession. And we talked to Michael Dell, boss of the eponymous technology company, about the future of the PC. A lot of shareholders kind of abandoned our, our company and... That created this incredible opportunity to accelerate the transformation. So I guess thank you very much for that. First, central bank watchers have plenty to occupy themselves with. Inflation is well above target in many countries. In Germany, Jens Weidmann, president of the Bundesbank, has just announced that he's stepping down. Investors, meanwhile, are watching anxiously for signs of when central bankers will begin to raise interest rates. New data published today show the annual rate of inflation in Britain dipped in September to 3.1% from 3.2% in August. But inflation is likely to rise further in coming months and stay well above the bank's 2% target, fuelled by energy and food. Those same pressures pushed America's rate of inflation in September up slightly to 5.4% from 5.3% in August. But Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve, continues to stress that higher inflation will pass and that the Fed will not raise rates this year. We see those things resolving. It's very difficult to say how big the effects will be in the meantime or how long they will last. But we do expect that we'll get back, we'll get through that. At a recent panel hosted by the European Central Bank, its president, Christine Lagarde, agreed. We monitor carefully, uh, but we certainly have no reason uh, to believe that this uh, price increases that we're seeing now uh, will not be largely transitory uh, going forward. So new comments by Andrew Bailey, governor of the Bank of England, at a G30 conference of central bankers on Sunday have drawn particular attention. Investors interpreted recent comments from the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, as saying that the central bank is seriously considering raising interest rates before the end of the year. Samaya Keynes is our Britain economics editor. His speech was on Sunday, October 17th. The next morning, investors were pricing in an interest rate rise of 24 basis points, or that's 0.24 percentage points, on top of the current rate of 0.1%. So what exactly did Andrew Bailey say? He was talking at a conference of central bankers and mentioned the impact of the recent energy price shock on inflation. 
I continue to believe that higher inflation will be temporary because it's in the nature of the underlying causes. But the energy story particularly means that it will last longer. What got the attention of the financial press and and markets was this choice of words. Monetary policy cannot solve supply-side problems, but it will have to act and must do so if we see a risk particularly to medium-term inflation and to medium-term inflation expectations. And that's why we at the Bank of England have signalled, and this is another such signal, that we will have to act. But of course, that action comes in our monetary policy meetings. Now, can you decode that from central bank speak for our listeners? What does it mean? Yeah, I think there's there's a real cult out there of interpreting every comma uh, and um and ah of a central banker. It is my view that investors have somewhat overreacted to this. The key bit of of his remarks, I think, was to make that point about having to raise interest rates as a conditional point. If we see a risk to medium-term inflation expectations, then we will have to act. The the Bank of England has already forecast that Britain's inflation rate is going to go over 4% later this year. That's more than double its target. And that higher inflation is probably going to last well into next year. Now, in one sense, this is fine. They can they can handle this. And if they are temporary, if this is a problem with the supply side of the economy, then it's really not a great idea to tighten monetary policy. That's not going to help anything. Now, the worry is, though, that this higher inflation goes on for so long that people start to expect it to continue. And the faster price rises get baked into businesses' costs, and that sets off this spiral of higher prices and higher wages. There's also a concern related to the the view of many central bankers that the reason inflation has been kept low and steady is because they are so great at their jobs. They are so credible. And the fear is that persistently high inflation could start to damage that credibility. And if you get into that situation, it could be quite painful to pull inflation down again. And so I think what Andrew Bailey was trying to do is to try and send the signal that if a persistent inflation problem emerges, then no one should doubt that the Bank of England will step in. Now, whether the Bank of England raises rates as markets seem to expect this year, or whether they do so next year, it it does seem like they're talking tougher than other central banks, such as the Fed or the European Central Bank. Why is that? Yeah, you're right. There's definitely been a a hawkish tilt and it's also more hawkish than other central banks. One reason is that in some senses, central banks at at the Bank of England may feel that they've got less room to manoeuvre. If you look at the Federal Reserve, you look at the ECB, they would diagnose their own problems over the past decade as having been too tight, too hawkish with monetary policy. Um, Inflation was 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 systematically below its target, that was a problem. They were concerned about inflation expectations drifting down too far. The Bank of England hasn't really had that problem. Uh, it's, It's achieved much, much closer to its target level of inflation. And so they're much less relaxed about this this inflation coming. I think the other difference between the Bank of England and and the Fed and the ECB is the Bank of England is presiding over a much smaller economy, one that's much more open. It has suffered the simultaneous shocks of Brexit and the pandemic at the same time. There have been serious critiques of its behaviour, questions about its credibility, its its 
perhaps it's even its independence. And so it's it's having to work extra hard to maintain that credibility, to, to prevent the upward creep of, of underlying inflation. It's just less self-confident. So what factors do you think will determine what the bank does next, Samaya? I think they're going to be looking very, very carefully at the data that's coming in over the next few months, particularly on, on the health of the labour market. The labour market data has been kind of distorted by the government's furlough scheme. That has now wound down, but it takes a little while for us to get an impression of, of what's happened to all those people who were on furlough. I do have concerns about labour supply growth. Inactivity has risen. For us, that's concentrated in young and older workers. It's also concentrated in men, not women. And that question about you know, the return into the labour force... That's important. If there's lots and lots of pressure on higher wages, then that perhaps would would suggest a slightly more hawkish approach in terms of monetary policy. If actually it looks like there are lots of people out of work, if there's lots of underemployment, people working less than they really want to, then that would be a reason to hold your fire. And just to finish, I think that one of the massive problems facing all analysts of the UK economy right now is that It's just unclear how these various shocks hitting the British economy are interacting. Everyone's had the shock of the pandemic, but the UK is unique in that it has just extricated itself from its largest trading partner. Brexit has happened. And so that's this other layer of uncertainty over everything. How much permanent damage has all of this done to the UK economy? Tricky question to answer, Samaya. Thank you very much. Thank you. Real-time understanding of the economy is in one sense at something of a low. As Sumeya just told us, uncertainty about the prospects for inflation is high. And it's been a very bad couple of years for economic forecasters. But the chaos of the pandemic is rapidly reshaping how economists work. It's accelerating a trend towards using new kinds of data to build a picture of what's going on in the economy right now. If it works, it could transform economics on a par with the credibility revolution we talked about with this year's Nobel Prize winners in last week's show. To find out more, I'm joined by Arjun Romani from our economics team here in London. Welcome, Arjun. Thanks, Rachna. And Callum Williams, our senior economics writer based in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Callum. Thanks, Rachna. Now, together you've written this week's cover package, which is on what you're calling the real-time revolution in economics. What do you mean by that? And what's the nature of this change? Arjun, maybe you could start us off. There are a few things going on here. So first, high-frequency data is available like it really never has been. You can actually track you know, labor shortages uh, with online job postings on various sites like Indeed.com. The second big change is that research uh, by economists and, and other social scientists is now much more timely and specific. So you know, with this real-time data, it's also much more granular. So instead of just looking at national data, you can also look at data you know, at the neighborhood level. And that's actually led to kind of an explosion in, in research. That leads to kind of the, the third change, I think, which is it's much more policy relevant. If you look at the, what the Treasury Department in, in both the US and UK were doing, and actually many governments around the world, is they had dashboards of real-time indicators you know, on things like restaurant reservations, uh, public transportation usage, office occupancy, etc., that gave them like a really rich picture of what was going on in the economy. And so taking all these things together, we call this big change the third wave of economics. Callum, why third wave? So to oversimplify ever so slightly, 
you can sort of divide economics into three waves. The first wave is is with the original kind of classical economists like Adam Smith, really going all the way up to Keynes. And it's the first wave to the extent that they were more focused on on theory than they were uh, empirical analysis. Most of the stuff written in economics tended to be written by one person and pretty much always um, a man. The way that it had impact on the world was not really by kind of analysis of specific policy questions, but more about kind of structuring the way that people thought about the economy. So, you know, Smith was all about free trade. Keynes was all about government intervention. Then you've got the second wave of economics, which really is when data starts to enter the picture. This really gets going from the 1930s and 1940s when you start to get proper national statistics that are being published frequently. And so you do have more uh, empirical work. And also what you see over this over the 20th century is that the number of authors on papers and of books tends to go up. So the third wave really is turning up the second wave up to 100% volume. It's much less theoretical, and it's much, much more driven by data. Arjun, let's dig a little bit deeper there into what Callum said. What's the main difference about the kinds of data analysis that we're seeing today? Is it the quantity, the frequency, how they're being used? It's really all of the above. So let's start with uh, the frequency. So typically, uh, official government statistics are are released on a lag. For instance, uh, in in America, the American Community Survey for 2020 was just released last month, actually. So, you know, that's over half a year late. But a lot of that data, for example, on, you know, where populations are flowing, um, you know, how much individuals are, are spending and so forth, you can actually get a picture of in real time using a lot of data from the private sector uh, that's released oftentimes at a daily or, you know, weekly or monthly basis. Uh, and there's also data over, you know, a much greater number of topics. And finally, the last thing is we have more and more sophisticated methods, regression models and so forth that are able to, you know, do things like tease out cause and effect that the Nobel Prize um, just last week was awarded for. And all those techniques are increasingly being applied to these uh, high frequency and granular data sets. And are there examples of this analysis actively, constructively influencing policy? And could forecasts start to be of better quality? So probably, it's, it's always hard to know the impact of a particular research paper or bit of analysis on the policy process because it's such a complicated thing. That said, you have a bunch of economists now who are kind of watching policy in real time and offering incredibly quick, rapid fire assessments of whether those those policies are working. I mean, you can see this also from the from the IMF, which is like kind of represents the dominant mode of thinking about the global economy from elites broadly defined. And if you look at how the IMF's citations changed between, say, 2009, the last big crisis, and now, back then, pretty much all the papers they cited were from many years beforehand, which in a sense had nothing to do with the global financial crisis. They were more principles of like why financial crises happen. But then if you look at the IMF in, in October 2020, it's giving its overview of the global economy. In, in the chapter that deals with that question, 95% or perhaps even more of the citations were from within the past six months. So it's like a, it's a really, really enormous change, which does kind of suggest that 
you know, economics is having more of an impact on, on public discussion than it did before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, kind of the ideal world that we, we'd like to have, and this is especially happening with central banks, is they're able to kind of construct these real-time forecasts from the ground up. And as a result, they're better able to conduct monetary policy because they're not going to run into the same traps they ran into in 2008, where it was, you know, almost a year too late before they knew as we were in a recession. This is a, a tricky one, even with uh, real-time data. You'll know when they happen a bit faster than you would before, but knowing that whether they'll happen in advance is, uh, you know, still an incredibly difficult problem, even with uh, real-time data. Do you think this shift happened with the pandemic, Callum, or was were there already some sort of beginnings of change in the years before COVID? So this didn't emerge from nothing with the pandemic. There was a fantastic Bank of England paper <laughs> published in 2011, which I think you may potentially know about. <laughs> Um, which looked at Google search data to try and predict the unemployment rate in the UK. <laughs> um, Callum, thanks. Um, and listeners, just to explain, I was one of the authors of that paper. Um, and then when the Brexit referendum happened, there were a bunch of economists who were trying to scrape websites and stuff in advance of the official unemployment numbers and the official GDP numbers. But then the, the kind of interesting historical accident here is that the pandemic emerged first in China. And in China, high-frequency data has much more of a, of a history, basically because the official statistics sometimes can't be trusted. So it was just second nature for analysts to look at the high-frequency data. And so then you had a bunch of analysts in the, in, in the West and, and Japan and Australia who went, oh, okay, actually, this is kind of useful. And so that's really when the high-frequency stuff got going. You're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that the the COVID downturn was so consumption driven, I think was sort of ideal for the use of real time analysis and as well as the fact that there's just so many more data sources. Yeah. Now, Arjun, you mentioned the Nobels and only last week Ryan Avent was talking about how interesting it would be to see how economics changes as the types and quantities of data available for analysis expand with digitization. Do you think the profession will end up turning into data science? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. And I, it's certainly a worry that some economists have. I don't think it's... Uh, you know, the, the entire profession will will go in that direction. Just to go back to the the example of the Nobel Prize, half of the prize was awarded for you know the application of of empirical techniques to labor economics, but the other half was really for the the theoretical contributions. I think certainly more economists will will be using data in their work, and that trend is you know very very clear. Oftentimes, running. The, what we call industrial labs, almost like the the pure sciences like biology or physics or chemistry. And you have, you know, several professors with many, many research assistants who are crunching these large data sets and you kind of need that. The one question I, I will add here, though, is the supply of data in, in COVID, a lot of it has come from private companies. You know, during COVID, a lot of companies release their data publicly, but eventually, you know, some of these companies might want to, to charge for their data. That is one of the, the open questions here um, that we'll have to keep an eye on. And finally, Callum, on the promise of this real-time revolution, it, it feels like it opens up plenty of ambitious possibilities. Do you think we could see new ways of doing stimulus? Absolutely. I mean, w one of the biggest problems actually with the with the old data sets that people had to work with was that when it came to, 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 to local areas, often the quality was extremely low. So I think on on regional policy, which is which is very important, and a lot of governments saying you know they want to do more on that, real time data will help. I think also in terms of being able to respond quickly when when the next recession happens, because one will happen at, at some point sooner or later. What you had in the pandemic, if you cast your mind back about a year, was that the real time data around this time was was starting to 
to show that the economy was slowing quite dramatically. And that kind of galvanized efforts to, to try and do something and pass more stimulus, which is ultimately what, what happened. So, yeah, I think a policy can be a lot better as a result of this. Arjun, Callum, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachna. Thank you. To find out more about this real-time revolution, why not sign up for our free weekly newsletter? It comes out every Thursday and you can get yours at economist.com slash money talks. That's economist.com slash money talks. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One of the things revealed by all this high-frequency data has been, if not an exodus, at least a shift in the centre of gravity for tech entrepreneurs. Silicon Valley may no longer be the centre of that universe, as companies look instead to cities like Miami and Florida and Austin, Texas. Earlier this month, Elon Musk followed firms like Oracle and Hewlett-Packard in confirming that Tesla will move its headquarters from California to Texas. A couple of days later, our Schumpeter columnist, Henry Trix, got to speak to a longtime champion of the joys of Austin, Texas. Michael Dell is the founder and CEO of Dell Technologies and the author of a new autobiography, Play Nice But Win. And Henry asked him how he reads this renewed rush to leave the valley. There's no question that there's been a, a movement. I, I get, get regular calls and, and emails from you know, my friends from Silicon Valley that are thinking about or have moved to to Austin. And look, I think it's an and thing, not an or thing. I don't think Silicon Valley is going to die. <laughs> uh, but, you know, certainly, you know, Austin, you've got 420,000 students within about a 100 mile radius of here. And companies are built around great pools of talent. There is no exception to that anywhere in the world. Is there something about the culture of Silicon Valley that people are trying to get away from when they're moving to Texas, for example? I've certainly heard that from some of the folks that have moved, yes. What have you heard? <laughs> well, I'll let you talk to them. I mean, why don't, why don't you go ask uh, you know, okay. Elon Musk and some of the others? I mean, look, I think they've talked about regulation, they've talked about taxes and, and other such things. Uh, so, you know, ask them. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's turn to your book and go back a bit in time. I mean, one thing I was really struck by uh, was your account of how you were able to start Dell essentially out of your own pocket. You didn't rely on VC capital or anything like that. How different is the entrepreneurial experience now to how it was back then in the 1980s when you started out? Yeah, I think it's completely different, Henry. Uh, so, you know, there was venture capital back then and there were people that were called you know entrepreneurs, but those were not things you heard about very often. There were no venture capitalists chasing me down to fund me. <laughs> 
<laughs> and interestingly enough, the first quarter that I operated right out of my dorm room, we were profitable. And when we went public a couple of years later, we were profitable. So yeah, it's, it's very different. I mean, I think what's inspiring about what's going on now is you have so many entrepreneurs and so much risk capital that is going after a lot of really hard problems. So so how does that put Dell today? I mean, Dell is a, one could say, a sort of middle-aged company now, I guess. There is a sort of a sense that Dell is no longer the sexy company that it once was, and it's surrounded by sexier startups. How do you manage that? You know, in the first half of this year, our revenues were a little over $50 billion. The last quarter, we grew 15%. And we're investing heavily in many new multi-billion dollar business opportunities that we're excited about. Things like building out this multi-cloud ecosystem. I think there's also an enormous growth at the edge. Uh, we need all sorts of new computing infrastructure for this distributed computing world and decentralized finance, the metaverse, autonomous transportation, all of that requires a tremendous set of capabilities. And very often, you know, Dell Technologies is, is the company behind that and, and providing it. Okay. I mean, you say, yeah, you're investing and I know you are, but it's striking to see that over the last decade or so in which Dell has been really on quite a debt fueled spending spree, you have really sought now to strengthen your balance sheet. And you've also talked now about returning a lot of cash to shareholders, which which a lot of tech companies seem to be doing. Isn't there a risk in a sense that investment is sort of in a sense forsworn because everyone is uh, is so busy making their shareholders happy with share buybacks and that sort of thing? So, you know, we we did the largest go private ever in technology. And then on the heels of that, we did the largest merger acquisition ever in technology. And yeah, we used a lot of debt and took advantage of the fact that we had incredible cash flows in our business and interest rates you know, have continued to drop. And that set up a very favorable environment. Now, coming out of that, we got a double-notch upgrade by uh, S&P to investment grade. And so, yeah, we've announced a new capital allocation policy. We're doing a $5 billion share repurchase. We're going to initiate a dividend in the first quarter. And at the same time, we're investing aggressively in all these new areas. And not only that, we set up a venture capital firm inside Dell. <laughs> I see. So, so let's go back to, uh, to, I guess, what has always been the core of your business, which is the, uh, the Doughty PC. When you started Dell, uh, you described the PC as the greatest general purpose business productivity tool ever created. And yet, I guess, pretty quickly, people started talking about the death of the PC. It's still here. It's had a tremendous pandemic. But where does it go from here? You know, certainly if you go back to 2012, kind of the narrative was, oh, the smartphone's here and the tablet's here. So guess we don't need PCs anymore. A lot of shareholders uh, kind of abandoned our, our company and that created this incredible opportunity to accelerate the transformation. So I guess thank you very much for that. Uh, in the last quarter, we shipped more computers than ever and boop, 
likely top that, you know, in the second half of this year. So as we move to this hybrid work being, a, a, I think, a pretty permanent way, it doesn't look like you're working in, in the Economist uh, office there in London. You know, I think all of that is an enormous tailwind for growth in our industry. I, and just to go back to end on the book, Michael, I mean, one of the things that gives your story a lot of grit is your relationship with the uh, activist investor Carl Icahn. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic. He sued Dell in 2013 uh, to try to derail your efforts to go private. And then he came back at you in 2018 when he went public again. So how does that relationship shape how you think about the role of activism in general? I mean, is there a role for activists? Sure, I think there's a role for activists. And look, activists that play fair and you know want to increase the value of a company with thoughtful analysis and and value add they're great um, but you know Carl's a pirate right he's you know it's it's green mail uh, techniques and I describe it all in the book I think uh, it's important to expose him for what he is and you know I confronted him in a pretty dramatic moment you know, during the go private process. And that's the famous meatloaf moment. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're at his house having <laughs> dinner over his wife's meatloaf. You know, to him, it's a big poker game, you know. Uh, and and so you're, you're now back. I mean, you took the company private. You won the battle with ICANN in that, at that time. But you're now public again. Why is it now important, better for you, I guess, to be public? So, you know, coming off of the two epic tra transactions that we did, you know, uh, it came time to really bring all the shareholders together in one class and clean up the balance sheet and simplify things. And the best way to do that was to go public. And, you know, uh, our stock has performed well. And importantly, what we did during the transformation reignited the entrepreneurial engine of the company and reignited the kind of risk-taking that was the origin of the company. And now I think we do have that permission to continue to, to transform. And, you know, 15% growth rate for a $100 billion company is pretty respectable, I think. <laughs> uh, Michael Dell, many thanks. Thanks very much, Henry. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, there's a special deal for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. As well as a review of Mr. Dell's book, you'll find our analysis of the slowdown in China's economy and a brilliant profile of Samsung and its plans to take advantage of the chip wars. All that and more at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Rachna Schanberg, and in London, this is The Economist. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.